Thank you, Brendan. Let's uh, spend a moment. I was also informed that we have um, the whole situation with Arletta needs to be prayed for. Um, also found out Ruby Finch's daughter, Diane, recently passed away. And um, we're waiting to hear for the arrangements. Those have not been set yet. So we'll get that information out to you guys as soon as we possibly can. Um, but let's pray for those two situations right now. Let's just start that way. Lord, thank you for, again, for this opportunity we have to gather to worship. God... Um, as we gather together, it's, it's so important that we bear one another's burdens. Lord, we pray right now for Arletta, for these um, tumors that have been found. God, you, we know you are the great healer. We know that you can heal her body. Um, Lord, we pray, though, that your will would be done, that whatever it is that you have, that your uh, purposes are in this, that they would be fulfilled. Lord, that your will would be done in her life. Lord, that she would look to you through this situation and trust you through this situation. Um, and God, I also pray with, for um, Ruby Finch and her family with this loss. Um, Lord, I just pray you be with the family now. Um, bring, your, bring your comfort to them. May you, uh, or may you just, uh, just intervene in the situation. And Lord, if there's... Uh, someone that through this through this situation that you have that you're bringing to yourself, God, I pray that even now you would begin to uh, impress upon them, and Holy Spirit, you'd begin working in their lives even now. Um, may you help us as a church to be there for for Ruby and for her family in any way that we possibly can, um, that we can uh, serve and minister in this time. In your name, Amen. amen. So we're going to be today, we're going to be in John chapter 4. If you remember last week, in, we were in John chapter 4. We tried to get through all the first 42 verses. I was not successful at that. Uh, we ran out of time. And uh, so we're going to try to finish up that passage today. Um, <clears throat> so before we jump into the passage itself, I wanted to uh, kind of bring up and kind of bring a backdrop to the sermon today. In, in a couple of days, there's a very important event happening in, in American life on November 8th. Uh, we have an election coming up. And many people are approaching this election thinking that voting one way or the other is, either go is going to save America. And that is going to be what's going to save our nation is this election. How that election works will determine everybody's mood and everybody's attitude towards what the future of our country is going to be like. Today, let me propose to you that Scripture does not put our trust in politics. Amen. Scripture does not put our trust in, in, in elections. Scripture does not, first and foremost, though Scripture, we can, we can support this, that Scripture would be in favor of us voting. And that is an important thing as Christians for our voice to be heard, for, uh, for, uh, for biblical beliefs. Um, that we can have our voice and we, we are thankful to be in a nation that allows us to do that. However, Scripture gives us, and what we'll see today is that Scripture gives us a different perspective. Uh, uh, scripture does not tell us to save the world through politics. Scripture does not give us a command to fix the world's problems through some sort of election system. Scripture gives us a very clear and direct command that our first and primary way of bringing change to this world is through us personally taking the gospel to the nations. 
That's you, and that's me, and that's what Scripture teaches. Notice uh, with that as the backdrop of what we're going to see in today's in today's passages. Let's kind of do a little bit of review. Remember, Jesus is sharing the gospel. Had just got done sharing the gospel with the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman at the well. We saw last week how this was completely strange for a Jewish man to be having an interaction with a Samaritan woman in the first place, that culturally, this would be completely unacceptable. Culturally, this would be reputation ruining, uh, uh, getting uh, banned, getting kicked out. It would have been bad news if Jesus was concerned about that. However, thankfully, he isn't, and he wasn't. And instead, he chose to find this woman who, as we find out as the, as the first 26 verses unpack, we find she is not a moral person. She's not a nice person. She's probably even had a very poor reputation in her own community. Um, and Jesus still shares the gospel with her. That didn't matter to Jesus. He wasn't concerned about that aspect. Today we're going to see how this respond, how the how the response here takes place, um, how, what what the response is to this this uh, this event of Jesus sharing uh, sharing with this Samaritan woman. So as we come to this text, we're going to see first of all that Jesus sends us to spread the gospel, and second, we're going to see that Jesus is the only Savior of the world. Start in verse 27, we'll read through to verse 42, and we'll walk through the passage together. Just then his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman, but no one said, what do you seek? Or, or what are you ta- why are you talking with her? The woman left her water jar. So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of town and were coming to him. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, Has anyone brought him something to eat? Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Do you not say, There are yet four months, then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life, so that sower and reaper may rejoice together. For here the the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored, and you have entered into their labor. Many Samaritans came from that town believing in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything that I had ever heard. So When the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed with them two days. And many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, It is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this opportunity to look at this passage. Lord, to see the importance uh, of what's going on here, to see this, this, uh, this command to be about sharing the gospel. Lord, we, we, we'll, we'll see here in this, what we'll see here in this passage, Lord, un, unpack our own hearts as well. Um, and you break down the, the, the walls that may be preventing us from, from being obedient to your word. Lord, at this time, I pray that you would just bring, help us to bring you glory in the way we receive your word today. In your name, 
Amen. Amen. So first we're going to see that Jesus sends us to spread the gospel. We see, first of all, the response of the Samaritans and how they respond to this woman. Remember, we, we talked about this woman. This woman was a, she had had many husbands. Uh, she'd been married or been with five other men. And the men, man that she was married to at that moment, she wasn't even married to. And this woman, maybe then because of that cultural issue, because of her reputation, she may have had a bad reputation. But either way, she drops her water jar and heads back to town. Remember at this time also the disciples during this conversation had already gone to town to go and get food for themselves and for Jesus. They had gotten food for, for that reason. At this point, right at the end of this conversation, verse 27, the disciples have just come back and they marvel that he was talking with a woman. Right? This was, uh, as we mentioned a little bit last week, it would have been strange for a man to be speaking with a, a single man, to be speaking with a, with a woman by themselves. There would have been uh, almost certainly some sort of relationship intent. There would have been some sort of courtship intent going on here. And even, even doubly so because this was at a well. And that's where you pick up ladies, is at a well. Right. We saw that last week that we'd seen that, that there was this idea that because there was that there was two Old Testament patriarchs who had met their wives at Wells, that this is the place to go meet girls. Right. If you want to meet your future wife, go to a well. She's probably there. Right. So this should be very different for us. I don't think most of us were like, let's go to that well and check out what's going on. Right. <laughs> we probably wouldn't do that. Um, but in that culture, that was kind of the way that this is kind of the idea here. So the disciples show up and they're kind of like, what is Jesus doing? Right? They may have thought of that, but the, look, they didn't say anything. They marveled that he was talking with a woman, but no one said, what do you seek or what, why are you talking with her? Now, why didn't they say anything? Most likely because she was probably standing right there. They were trying not to be too rude, right? So nobody said anything about it, but they were thinking it. They were thinking, what's he doing? Why is he talking to her? What's going on here? What's, what's, what's happening? And instead of, but instead of asking, they were polite and they didn't say anything. So the woman left her water jar and went away to town and said to the people, come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Now, again, remember Jesus, the conversation had even shifted from talking about her husbands to talking about worship locations, Right. Uh, we had seen that last week that she's like, hey, we, we worship on Mount Gerizim. You guys worship on Mount Zion. Who's right about this? And Jesus says, true worshipers are going to worship in spirit and in truth, not on these particular mountains. That's not going to be the big deal, right? That's not going to be the most important issue when it comes to worship, right? He's talking about after, after his death and resurrection, uh, for one thing. He's talking about after his death and resurrection and the establishment of the church. It's not, we don't have to go to Jerusalem in order to gather to worship, do we? Right? We don't have to go to Mount Gerizim in order to gather to worship. We can come here in Gordon, Texas. That's fine, right? We're not disobedient to Scripture to do so. Further, Jesus was also pointing to the fact that, that Jerusalem was also going to be destroyed. Not only was the temple in Samaria destroyed, but the temple that was in Jerusalem was going to get destroyed as well, and that did happen in AD 70. Um, and at this time when John is writing, that's already happened. So his, his readers would have caught that as well. So anyway, she, she, even still, even having this theological conversation and Jesus continues to share the gospel with her, the one thing that stuck out to her mind was the fact that Jesus knew everything about her. At least that's what she said, right? Now again, did Jesus tell her everything about her? But no, but he told her some things that 
he shouldn't have known, right? He showed that he is God. He showed that he is all-knowing in the sense that he, in, the, in this fact that he knew even these details about her life that she tried to keep hidden. And she goes to the people and she says, come, see this man who's told me all that I ever did. And she asks the question, could he be the Christ? Could he be the Christ? Or the Messiah, the Savior? So there's something in her mind where she, she's not quite sure yet what, what he, who he might be. She's, is, he, is he the Savior? Is he the Messiah? Is he the one that's going to bring us salvation? And she's got this question in her mind. Whatever, whatever it is that she tells the people, whatever their thoughts are, they decide that they need to go see Jesus, right? Now also because John's also a good storyteller and the Holy Spirit along with him is a good storyteller, while this is happening, it says this is what else was going on during that time, continuing to set the scene. Um, it says, meanwhile, during this time, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. Remember, they had gone to town to get food. So they're thinking, Jesus has got to be hungry because we're hungry. So he says, Rabbi, eat. And Jesus responds, but he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, has anyone brought him something to eat? Right? They're thinking, who brought you food? Right? Where are we getting food? Who, who gave you food? Right? What, what food do we don't know about? Again, this is the disciples taking things very literally. Again, just like all these people, everyone that Jesus interacts with takes him really literally when Jesus intends to mean spiritual things. And Jesus responds to clarify this. He says, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Now in this, almost certainly, this, his disciples would have understood this reference he's making to Deuteronomy chapter 8 and verse 3. In Deuteronomy chapter 8 and verse 3, let me turn there real quickly and we'll read that. Um, give me a second, I did not bookmark this beforehand. Deuteronomy chapter 8 and verse 3. It says, and he humbled you. This is uh, it's talking about God. And he humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know that he might make, make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes out of the mouth of the Lord. Remember, Jesus used this same passage to, to reject the temptations that, that, were, that Satan brought to him. Satan told him, hey, turn these rocks into stone. He says, man will not live by bread alone but by every word that comes out of the mouth of the Lord. So Jesus here is showing how he's doing this, that even in this moment as well, he is living on feeding off of doing the will of God, feeding off of being, being sustained by and fed by the word of God, right? So even in this moment, he's doing the same thing that he had done in the, in the, in the, in the, uh, in the wilderness when he was being tempted by Satan. So almost certainly he's making this reference to Deuteronomy 8.3, and this is where he's getting his spiritual sustenance from. Jesus was sustained by fulfilling his mission on which the Father had sent him. Remember as well, we saw this similar kind of idea when Jesus was approached in, in the Gospel of Luke by his uh, mother and father when Jesus was missing when he was 12 years old. And they, went, they found him at the temple teaching the rabbis, right? A 12-year-old teaching the experts, and he's teaching them about, about the Old Testament. And he said, this is what it's talking about. And they're, they're like, how does he know so much? How is he this good? Right? Well, 
he wrote it, so that usually helps. You know, <laughs> it's like, well, kind of, kind of, that was me, right? Uh, that's all about me anyway. It's what he tells the people throughout the rest of the gospel. He says, you've read Moses, you should know about me, right? So he's like, it's all about me anyway. So of course he knows it, right? Um, but at that moment, his, his mother says, what are you doing? What are you trying to do? And he says, he says, don't you know that my job is to be about the will of God? That's what I'm here to do. So we have Jesus again reiterating this, that, that his purpose, his goal in life is to accomplish the will of God, which will ultimately be accomplished, as we'll see, at the death and resurrection at the end of the book. That this is the will of God. This is why Jesus has come to earth, right? So he, he, we see here that even in this moment, he's being sustained by doing the will of God. My food, verse 34 again, is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. And then he continues on, he, he kind of switches gears here, kind of along the same idea of food. And he says, do you not say that I get four months and then comes the harvest? Um, whatever this might mean here, this is kind of, it, it's a little bit divided on how to understand this. It's, it's a couple of different options. Basically what Jesus is saying is, is it takes time between when you plant and when you harvest, right? It takes time. Whether that's four months, whether that's longer, shorter, whatever time period you're looking at from whatever perspective of whatever day you're looking at, it takes time between sowing a seed and harvesting that seed or planting a seed and harvesting that seed. It takes time. And Jesus is say, says here, doesn't it usually take time for harvest to come? He says, look, I tell you, lift up your eyes. Now imagine the scene, right? Jesus is teaching his disciples. They're having this moment. And we've already saw what's already going on. This woman has gone back to town and they're headed to go and see Jesus. Now imagine they're looking out on the field and they're seeing these people coming toward them. And Jesus says, the harvest is coming. It's right there. They're walking toward us. They're on their way here. This is all... Um, Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes. See that the fields are white for harvest, right? Now, this could be a reference to, again, some wheat or whatever being ready for harvest. It would have been white, and he may have been using this metaphorically. It may also be referring to the fact that maybe they were wearing white overcoats, right? White-colored overcoats and coats, and it looked like a field just coming toward them, right? Whatever the case is, this is, what he, this is the, the, the terms he uses. Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life. So that the sower and reaper may rejoice together. Now again, this is a bizarre statement. Okay, what is Jesus getting at here? He says, already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit. In other words, this would be maybe kind of the same idea of, it, is of casting out and catching a fish almost immediately, just kind of going back and forth, right? Imagine as a farmer, if you're a farmer, to throw the seeds down and poof, there they are, right? Oh, look at that. There's, there's what I'm going to make money doing, right? It's just that quickly. This is kind of the idea that Jesus has going on here. And this is a reference, again, to Amos chapter 9, verse 30. It says, The days are coming, declares the Lord, when the reaper will overtake the plowman and the planter by the one treading grapes. This is the idea here is that this is going to be so much plenty. There's going to be such an overabundance of harvest that while the people are even still planting and plowing the fields, the people reaping are going to overtake them and pass them. There's going to be so much, right? 
This is a bizarre, it's, it sounds bizarre, but that's the whole point. There's going to be, it's the, the harvest is so plentiful that the, the, the people sowing seed and the plowmen can't even keep up with the harvest. Right? Now think about this then in the context of what Jesus is talking about and talking about souls and people receiving Christ. What a beautiful picture that is. What a wonderful picture. So come back to the passage already. The one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life. So the sower and reaper may rejoice together. So here the saying holds true. One sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for that which you did not labor. Others have labored and have not entered into their labor. This here then gives us a reminder about how evangelism works. Right? One sows, another reaps. Sometimes we become really defeated when it comes to sharing the gospel with others, right? We, we, we share the gospel with somebody, they don't accept Christ at that moment. You share the gospel with somebody else, they don't accept Christ. You share the gospel with somebody else, and they don't accept Christ. And you're like, what am I doing wrong, right? What Jesus reminds us here is it takes more than one person, right? You may be sowing seed or plowing the field, and somebody else could be reaping the harvest later. You don't know what part you have in sharing the gospel. You don't know. I don't know. When I, when I share the gospel with people, I don't know which part I'm at. Most of the time, I'm not the person reaping. God has not called me to much of a ministry of reaping. But a lot of times, a lot of doors get open to have some conversation and gain some interest. It's... it's, it's it can be frustrating sometimes, right? Like, what am I doing wrong? How come nobody will bow the knee? Right? But again, what Jesus says is that we, what we, really what we need to do is we need to be thankful for the ministry that God has given us. Thankful for the part that we can have in sharing the gospel with others. And then those times when, when you do share the gospel with someone and they receive, you can almost guarantee that you're not the first person that's talked to them. And then you can rejoice in the Lord that he's been using others to share the gospel with this person as well. What a wonderful thing. This, this is how the community of faith works. This is how the body of Christianity works, right? Lots of people doing the harvesting and sharing and people getting saved. And we can know for a fact that there's others that have been involved. In fact, statistically speaking, a person hears the gospel, I think last I saw, average of seven times before they receive Christ, Right? So if you share the gospel with somebody once and they become a Christian, you can almost guarantee that there's been six other people before you who've shared the, go who've shared the gospel with that person. That's exciting, Amen. right? You might be sharing the gospel with somebody and it's number three. Well, they've got a couple more to go, right? So that's fine, right? You're, being, you're, taking, you're having part in what's going on in their lives. This is a great reminder about evangelism that Jesus gives here. One sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap for that which you did not labor. Others have labored and you have entered into their labor. So if you end up, if you are one of those people who are reaping harvest, sharing the gospel with somebody and they get saved. In other words, Jesus is reminding you to stay humble about that, right? You're reaping something that other people have sowed for, right? Now again, there are those those, those strange anomalies of times when you share the gospel with somebody, it's the first time they've ever heard, and they're like, yes, I need to receive Jesus. 
right? And those times are great too. And what a wonderful picture. Jesus already said how great that is that you sow and you reap, right? It's, it's this, this, that's this, this glimpse of this end times kind of view here, this eschatological time of plenty that we see in, in Amos chapter nine, that, that Jesus, that when we get those opportunities, somebody have heard the gospel for the first time and they receive Christ, it's a little glimpse of what it's going to be like when, when Christ returns. It's a small glimpse of what that's going to be like, right? What a beautiful thing. So no matter what, it's awesome, Amen. right? No matter what, sharing the gospel with people is amazing. And it's something that we are all called to do and we can all be encouraged in doing that. Jesus calls every one of us to spread the gospel. We don't know which part we're involved with, but we must share the gospel nonetheless. And then we can also remember that if we have the opportunity to see someone come to Christ, that we need to remember that others have been involved as well. So first off, we see that Christ, that Jesus sends all of us to spread the gospel, right? So if you are not sharing the gospel with your friends, with your family, with your coworkers, if you have not had any gospel conversations, whatever that might look like, any conversations related to the gospel with the people that God has put around you, you are being disobedient to this passage of scripture right here. Disobedient to the passage of scripture that Brendan read for us. The Great Commission. We are to go and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you, and lo, I'm with you always even to the end of the age. Let us not be disobedient Christians, satisfied to just live our lives and not let anybody know that we're a Christian, not let anybody know that we're a believer. Guys, how does this relate to the election then, right? How does this relate? You, you know, Justin, you brought up the election at the beginning. How in the world does this relate to that? You know what's going to save our nation? Is us taking the gospel to the nations. Seeing people get saved, seeing people discipled, seeing people come to know Christ and to grow in their relationship with Christ, that is the only hope that our nation really has. And I'm not talking necessarily about morals or Supreme Court or whatever. There is only one source of eternal life, one source of true hope, and that is through Christ. And unless we are busy about, the, about, the, about sharing the gospel with others, busy about being about harvesting, being a part of the harvest that is already ready for, for, for reaping, unless we are doing that, we are going to be contributing to people staying lost in their sin. And that's a dangerous game to play. I want to encourage you to... Uh, to, to meditate on that and think about that. If there's someone that you can think of right now in your mind and you say, I've not shared my faith with them. I've not shared the gospel with them. I've not shown them or talked to them about how they can know for sure that they have a relationship with Jesus and have that life, that abundant life, that, that, uh, that eternal life that I have. I want to encourage you to make it a point to talk to that person this week. Don't go another week without talking to them. Secondly, we see in this passage that, that, that Jesus is the only Savior of the world. Verse 39, many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. 
he told me all that I had ever did. That's what was her testimony. So you already have people who are already putting their faith in Christ, right? They're approaching Jesus to find out more about this guy, and they're already believing in him. They're already trusting in him as their savior because of the testimony of this one person, which again, coming to another application point, your testimony is just as powerful. If God saved you, that's an important story. No matter what that story looks like, you may think, well, mine's a boring, boring testimony. You know, I wasn't a drug addict and I wasn't in prison and I wasn't this and I wasn't that. It's kind of a boring story. Praise the Lord, <laughs> right? If you say, well, I've got a really messy story and nobody wants to hear that, right? Yeah, they do, <laughs> right? People want to know how Jesus saved you. Every single one of us were in the same condition of knowing and being in this condition of being under the wrath of God because of our individual sins. If Jesus has saved you today, you have a story to tell about how not for your sake, not because of anything you did, Jesus saved you. And you can share with somebody how they can know that if you know your own story. Continuing on here. Many Samaritans then, again, verse, verse 39, many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me that all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. What a wonderful thing. Jesus has already said, I mean, think about this. Jesus said, the fields are ready for harvest, and what happens? Big harvest. Now again, we'll actually see in the book of Acts, when, when the disciples start sharing the gospel in Samaria, there's still huge harvest. Why do you think that's happened? Think about this. Jesus is already planted in this, in, this, in this town. And this may have spread. So by the time the disciples get to Samaria, the, gar- the, the, the harvest has already been planted and it's been being plowed. Maybe by these, these, these very believers right here. So when somebody else comes in and shares the gospel, harvest. Right? You already see the beginnings of gospel work that's going to continue even into the book of Acts. How wonderful is that? It's just beautiful just how all of Scripture just comes together and plays this one note. They asked him to stay with them. He stayed with them two days, and many more believed because of his word. Verse 42, they said to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves and we know this is indeed the savior of the world. Isn't that how it works? Right? You hear the gospel from someone. Someone shares the gospel with you. Whether it's Sunday morning in a sermon. Whether it's, it's sitting in a break room at work. And someone receives the gospel. And as they grow in their walk with Christ, they say, you know what? I no longer believe in Jesus just because of what you said about him. I've seen what he's done in my life. And now I believe him for that. And I've seen who he is in scripture. And I'm growing and growing deeper in my relationship with him and my belief in him because I can trust God's word. This is the beauty. This is what discipleship is as well. So you have here, Jesus is with them for two days. These people get discipled. They say, we're no longer dependent on your story. We've got our story too. And we're trusting him for that reason as well. They said to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. This is indeed 
the savior of the world. This phrase, the savior of the world, it's not, there's not a particular passage of the Old Testament. I know oftentimes we like to look back and see how do these things relate to the Old Testament. This one doesn't come out of the Old Testament. This phrase is not a particularly, particularly messianic statement. There's no phrase, there's no prophecy about Christ from the Old Testament that calls him the savior of the world. God is sometimes called the savior, but this term is not only used in the Bible. The Bible isn't the only time this word savior comes up. The term was also used of Greek gods or even of the emperor. This Greek god is the savior of the world. This emperor is the savior of the world. Right? So John then, in using this term, and the Samaritans in using this term, what they're saying is they're emphasizing that Jesus is the only Savior of the world. That emperors, kings, gods, none of them are saviors. None of them are really saviors. The only one who's truly a Savior is Jesus. That's it. He is the only savior of the world. He says in in another place in the book of John, he says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. Jesus is the only way to salvation. And here we have the Samaritans, people that are not Jewish, people that are of the nations, if you will, from outside of, of the Jewish world. They're saying, he's our savior too. Last week we read, our scripture reading was out of Isaiah chapter 66. And God mentions several countries that are standing before the throne of God. And it says that there, there are not only those countries, but there are people from all tribes and tongues and nations that are standing before the throne of God. Jesus is not just the savior of the Jews. He's not just the savior of white Americans. He's not just the savior of Africans or Asians, South Americans, Central Americans, North Americans. He's not any particular nation's God. He's the savior of the whole world. This is why he says in Matthew 28, go and teach all nations, all nations, not just your neighbors, but all nations. This is in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. Jesus tells his disciples to, to witness about him, bear witness about him in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the uttermost parts of the world. Everywhere. Because Jesus is not a local God. He is not the God for a specific nation. He is not the religion for a specific nation. He is the God of the entire universe, the Savior of the entire world. And we are called to be about that task of sharing the gospel with this world. That's what we are called to do. Now we have a a wonderful opportunity at our church to be able to go on a mission trip to Honduras every year. We have our students that are going to be going to St. Louis every year, or or this year, not every year, maybe every year, I don't know. They're going to St. Louis this year. We have these opportunities, these these small opportunities that are going to, to be a light to the nations, to take the gospel to the nations. What about the rest of the year? What about the rest of the year? Are we as a church... A light to the nations, taking the gospel to the nations throughout the rest of the year? Or do we say, well, we go to Honduras, so we got that covered? 
Ah, the students are going to St. Louis. They got that covered. Or do we say, I have something I need to do. I need to share the gospel with my neighbor. I need to share the gospel with my friend, with my family member. Because I have that responsibility to take the gospel to the nations. Because Jesus is the only savior of the world. He is the only hope that this world has. The only true hope that this world has. That anyone in this world has. And that's our job. That's your job. That's my job. I'm not exempt from this. There's no except pastor's clause, right? There's not a clause that says only missionaries need to do that. Only deacons need to do that. Only worship leaders need to do that. This isn't just for me and Wayne. This is for every single one of us. How can you be about sharing the gospel? You can cast a vote in the voting booth. That's great, and you should. That's not going to save the world. It's not. Ultimately, will not save the world. We need to be about sharing the gospel with others. Let me pray for you guys. Lord, thank you for this opportunity we have to come together and to talk about this important aspect of your word. Lord, this great commission that you have given us to share the gospel with all nations. God, you tell us that as we are going, we should share the gospel with the nations. I pray, Lord, for every single person in this room that we would not shirk that responsibility or pass that responsibility off to someone else, but rather we would take up that responsibility for ourselves and for your word and for your glory, and we would take the gospel to the nations so that we may uh, glorify you by that. I pray that it's in your name. Amen.